0: If you were to ask any black uh, South African if they wanted to return to the apartheid years, what do you think they would say? If you were to ask that same question to the, if you had the opportunity before he died, to the late Nelson Mandela, how do you think he might have responded? Do you think Nelson Mandela, looking back uh, just in his last moments of his life, uh, would he reflect on his life, uh, his quarter of a century in jail? The lawlessness that he had to instigate in order to bring justice and to a fair hearing in that country. Do you think he would have felt, Nelson? Oh, that was a bit of a waste of time. Do you think he thought freedom was kind of a bit, you know, kind of overrated? I don't think so. There's a picture coming up. There's a, a, a movie coming uh, out uh, soon. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Twelve Years a Slave. Have you seen that? The trailers are really fascinating. And it tells a story, a true story, of a free man, a black man, called Samuel Northup. He was a talented carpenter and a very talented violin player. He grew up and made a good living. Is it not there? It's coming I think we've got a little picture somewhere. It's a little clip from the film. There we go. There's the three. Samuel Northup, that's the actor, obviously. In the centre is Samuel Northup. He grew up in New York, um, made a good living from playing the violin and selling uh, his carpentry things. But he he went down to Washington, D.C. at one moment and, over dinner, was drugged and tricked and captured and then sold into slavery. He was a wealthy man, had a family, lived in New York, but was sold into slavery and spent 12 years in the cotton farms of Louisiana. Sorry, my, my thing keeps going off here. I don't know what that is. Anyway, uh, it was only when the American Civil War came along that he, um, he actually got his freedom back. Now, I haven't seen the film yet, but in watching the clips, one little phrase is repeated again and again, and it's going to come up. He says, I don't want to just survive, he says. I want to live. And the point of just all those things coming together at the beginning is you know, slavery and oppression. We don't strive for those things, do we? It's not something we're looking for in our lives. We want freedom. We don't want slavery. We prize freedom, don't we? I mean, you look at uh, how much we are prizing those who have brought freedom. Look at Nelson Mandela. They reckon his funeral is going to be the biggest funeral of, of, kind of, of our lifetimes, There are more foreign dignitaries going to that funeral than any other funeral in the last number of decades. There are more living US presidents going to that funeral than any other funeral in history. We prize those who bring freedom. I go back to the early 1800s. Another man who sought freedom of others was William Wilberforce, lived just up the road in Clapham. He abolished slavery with others uh, in this country. He requested a quiet family funeral in the north of London, in his family estate, to be buried in just a a normal grave. But both parliaments closed their sessions and the funeral took place at Westminster Abbey and he was buried very close to his friend, William Pitt. Uh, These men won freedom, but that freedom was for years, not for an eternity But even then, look how we prize those who bring that freedom. And this is kind of the point of when we get to these verses, uh, these first 11 verses of chapter 4 of this letter to the churches in Galatia. You see, they'd heard the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. That good news that brings freedom, we see at the beginning of chapter 2 of Galatians. Freedom from having to try and earn our way to God. Freedom from fear of not being good enough for God. But what were they doing? Instead of enjoying or prizing that freedom Christ had brought them, that they were going back to old ways. They were thinking and living as those under that Old Testament law, as those that had to earn their way to heaven as slaves trying to earn their freedom. John Stott helpfully put it this way, it's going to come on your screens. Instead of growing in the liberty with which Christ had set them free, they had slipped back into the old bondage. So essentially what these Galatians were doing, Paul's warning them, he's saying, you're living as you once were, not as you are really now. What do you become in Christ so Paul firstly reminds him of where they had come from. He points them back and he uses this wonderful little picture. Cast your eyes down to verse 1 and 2 there of this boy who's an heir to a great estate. An inheritance, probably a big one. And Paul reminds him that, as on our sheets you see, once slaves under law. That they were once slaves under law. Follow with me if you can in verses 1 and 2. And we'll just remind ourselves of that little illustration that Paul uses He says this, what I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So these two little verses describe this boy. um, One day, all the estate will be his. In fact, it is his already. But through a promise. Or by a will, as we might know today but he can't yet experience all that the estate will bring because he's still this child. <laughs> now, this would have been, it's common now, it would have been common in that time as well. People have understood that as a child and an heir to a great estate, this inheritance is coming. You know, though much was promised, that child would be no different to the slave within the household. Why? Well, because... Both of them are still subject or under the control of guardians or trustees. Why? Well, because any child heir could not inherit the estate of their parents until, Roman law stated, until they were 14. I'm not sure what law is in this country. But until that point, they are under a guardian's authority for discipline. They could still be a naughty boy. They could still go to the naughty step. But they could, you know, if they wanted some pocket money, they'd still have to ask. They were under the guardian. But in that way, they they are just like a slave. Even after the age of 14, the child child heir in that Roman kind of uh, culture would only have limited access to the estate under then the control of a trustee. The trustee would have instructions about how that wealth could be used. And what this process did, it allowed the child to become of age, you might say today. So they wouldn't squander the inheritance. They get to 14, right, here we go. And they just go and blow it on Lego or whatever the 14-year-old likes. But the point is they had no liberty. They didn't have the freedom. They were under the control of another as a child. They're just like the slave. They're under the control of another until the time, look at it at the end of verse 2, until the time set by his father. And then Paul makes this link at the beginning of verse 3. Look at that. So, also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. And Paul is describing here, he's now making a link, describing the people of God in the Old Testament. They were heirs of a promised blessing. From God, They were under the law to show them their need of that promised blessing from God. But they hadn't received or inherited that promise, blessing from God. And Paul is saying they were like children in this time. And their childhood was like a form of bondage. It was like a form of slavery, Slavery, if you like. Slavery to what? Well, look at it. It's that phrase, the basic principles of the world. Now, loads of people—they write all sorts of things about here about this little phrase here—but simply, what it really means is, is that it's bondage to the elementary things. That's what it literally means. And Paul, then, if you flick forward to verse eight, I think he quite clarifies what that bondage to is. There, look what he look what he points there to. He describes God's people as being slaves to the, to uh, sorry, slaves to those who by nature are not gods. And the language he's using there is pointing to evil spirits, to, to, to maybe the devil or even Satan himself. And what I think Paul is doing here in verse 3 is that before Christ, in, before God's people came of age, they were captive to a law, to the law. And as we saw two weeks ago, that law is not inherently bad It had a good purpose, to reveal to God's people their need for the promise, for their need for a salvation through Jesus Christ. But what the devil has done is he's twisted that law in order to undermine God's people. And again, another scholar put this really well. He said, God intended the law to reveal sin, as it does in our hearts, and drive men to Christ. But Satan uses it to reveal sin and to drive men to despair. God meant the law to, as an interim step to man's justification to be made right with God. But Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. And Paul is saying, uh, even though the, the law has been, if you like, corrupted in that way, that's the old way. Once you were slaves under the law, but not anymore. That's not the case now. And what he's saying is, he's really saying... This is a retrograde step. This is, a, this is like a downgrade. You know, you get upgrades on your phones and all this kind of... This is like going back to, like, OS 1.1. I'm going to Apple talk there. I'm really sorry. I'm a bit of an Apple fan. But, you know, it's going right back to the beginning. It's like William and Kate. You know, the Prince William. And, you know, they've, they've just had millions upon millions of pounds spent on their new little flat, they called it, 21 bedrooms in Kensington Palace. At the taxpayers' expense. It'd be like them saying, okay, we really appreciate that, the taxpayers, but we quite like the shed in an allotment in the East End, please, instead. It would be a downgrade. It would be a backward step, if you like. It's a backward step here. That's what Paul's saying. But more importantly, he's saying it's a childish step. And that is Paul's point. He's saying, how can you turn back? You are free in Christ. You are no longer a slave under the law. It can't save you. It never could. He's saying, don't be deceived by these elementary things that Satan has now distorted. Once slaves under the law, you were. And now he's going to turn to the positive. And we see in our second point, in verses 4 to 7, we are now sons in Christ. I'm going to, keep your eyes down, I'm going to follow through these next verses and just explain them as I read them out, okay? So have a look at them. Verse 4, when did this become possible? Verse 4, but when the time had fully come, that is when in history God's people became of age, when was that? That happened when, look at the end of verse 4, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. But what did that achieve, you might ask? Verse 5, To redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. You see, here it is. Christ Jesus, through his perfect life and through his substitutionary death, offers us a gracious gift, an undeserved gift. And that is to buy us. The word used here is to redeem us out of slavery to that law. Not often we do, do we ever feel slave-like, do we? But Paul uses that term, slave. And you're probably thinking, I don't feel like a slave. But Paul uses that term to describe a kind of, it's mastery over us. That is, we, we're obligated to try and keep a standard. So we can kind of turn up to God and say, hey, look, I know I'm not perfect, but I've done this. I'm all right. I've not done that. But we know we can't keep it up. We always fail God's perfect standard. And so what we see here in these couple of verses. That God has infinitely loved us. So much that he sent his one and only precious son. And we see here critically. He is born of a woman. You see that? That is he shares our humanity. Why? Why? So he could swap places with us. Uh, Look at also, he he was born under the law. That is, he was uniquely qualified to keep that law. So as an owner could redeem a slave to freedom, buy then liberty before a judge, Christ Jesus purchases our freedom before the eternal judge. The nature of Christ, both in his humanity and his divinity, fully divine, fully human, is critical to the effectiveness of his mission. And one scholar put it this way, I found it very helpful. If Christ had not been a man, he could not redeem men, as in men and women. If Christ had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. That is, people like you and me. Oh, we try to do our best, but we muck up, don't we? And he continues If Christ had not been God's son, he could not redeem man for God or made them sons of God, brought us into his family. So Christ came to redeem. Here it is not explicit, but it's been explicit throughout Galatians. If you want to look back on put right in your notes, chapter 1, verse 4, it was there. Chapter 3, verse 13, it's a bit more explicit. Let me read that to you. The case has been made. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, the punishment that our sin, our rebellion against God deserves, by becoming a curse for us. He took everything that we deserve on himself. And he says, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus Christ essentially swapped places with us taking the just punishment that we deserve as he died on a tree, a cross. So God's purpose in giving us Christ was firstly to redeem us, but also, as we see here, to adopt us, to make us one of his children, his sons, specifically here. Don't ever half God's blessings to us in Christ. So many people do this. The punishment we deserve is not only removed as we're redeemed... But secondly, we receive the blessing that Jesus deserved as he lived perfectly under the law. It would be like, let me illustrate it this way. Imagine someone in jail. Uh, they're there for life. They've done something absolutely awful. They can be redeemed. They can be bought out of the punishment that they deserve. That's one element of what Jesus Christ does for us when he dies on the cross. He buys that person out of the punishment they deserve and puts himself in their place. But that is half of the gospel, if you like. The gospel is, if you like, double that. It would be like taking that life, life sentence criminal out of jail and then saying, you are now a knight of the realm. Not only redeemed, you see, the Christian has the full rights of the son. As a son of God. And Paul continues there in verse 6. Look at it. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So God sends his son to redeem, but he sends his spirit. It's the first kind of introduction here in in Galatians. Why? To secure that redemption in our hearts. One great demonstration of this is when we pray. Because we can now pray with confidence. Father. Father. Because we have the Spirit in our hearts to secure that we are sons. And what we see um, in those verses, we call out. Do you see that call out? We call out, Abba, Father. And the call is literally a loud cry, a passionate, profound cry feeling. And the calling seems to point to a kind of a dis- uh, an absolute dependent spontaneity. I need to cry out to you, Lord. I will cry out to you, Lord. It's like calling out of a child to their parents in the middle of a night. Parents might groan at that. But just wait a minute. Is that your prayer life, though? Do you call out to God? I know you struggle here. I struggle. You tell me you struggle. But why do we struggle to call out, to pray to our Heavenly Father as adopted sons? With His Spirit in our hearts. One of my boys, a little bit younger, don't you think that's all right? They had a terrible uh, problems with their ears and uh, it was very painful for them. And They would cry out um, uncontrollably, really, weeping uh, in the middle of the night. The pain was awful. The question is Did my son ever question whether to cry out or not? Did they ever consider keeping quiet in the middle of the night? No, of course they wouldn't. He knew the pain, he could feel that. But he knew the seriousness of his condition. But he also knew the relationship that he was in. He knew his father loved him. And he knew that even if he called me out of bed for the third time that night, in excruciating pain, he knew that I would be there to comfort him, to do what I could for him. He knew the seriousness of his condition and he knew his relationship. He was my son. Why do we not cry out, call out to our Heavenly Father as we need to? Why do we sometimes, if you like, lie in bed with our ears ringing with the sin of the day gone by? Why do we not cry out for forgiveness? Why do we not plead for help for the future to our Father who has loved us so much? I know it's not very British, this kind of call out, cry out. You know, that's not very British, is it? But lying in our beds, holding our ears, if you like, metaphorically, trying to get through our life on our own, dealing with the sin and rebellion that we know, so in our hearts and our minds, I kind of want to say, have we forgotten who we are? You are acting like a slave again. You're a son If you've given your life to Jesus Christ. Sons cry out. And slaves lie in fear. Because you are sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out. Abba Father. God has been so kind. He's not only secured our sonship. But he's also given us the spirit to assure us. Of being sons. So, we could experience that sonship if you like. And we experience that most profoundly, most regularly through prayer. So, if we don't pray, what assurance do we have? What joy are we sacrificing of knowing that we are sons of God? Too much. That experience of our sonship through the Spirit is so personal, it's so intimate. We have access to the almighty God through prayer and we can speak to him as daddy, which is essentially what Abba means. It's a very personal, intimate use of the word father. Just think of the Lord's Prayer as well and how we approach God, how Jesus teaches to approach our our father in heaven. It's not Lord, King, it's father. Father. The Spirit is given so we can experience that we are sons of God. And he witnesses to our sonship and even he prompts our prayers, as we know in Romans 8, many of us. And don't think that you need extra spirit portions at any point. Look, notice Paul doesn't say in verse 6, God sent part of the Spirit. Do you notice that? Because some churches do teach that. No, he says, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit completely. There's total assurance here. Uh, But how do we receive that assurance? Is it through some big sign? So through some big experience? No. It's through quiet prayer, it seems. The Spirit is given into our hearts to witness to us being sons. He assures us. He comforts us. He guides us. He leads us to cry out in need to our loving Heavenly Father. Daddy, I need you. For salvation? Yes. Yes through jesus christ and probably for tomorrow too do you wonder how much god loves you sometimes you just like me sometimes you think oh life hasn't quite worked out as i imagined 10 years ago and so i'm beginning to kind of question how god kind of works good for me well these verses i think are helpful look what he's done Oh, he's redeemed you, verse 5. You've been adopted as his sons at the end of verse 5. You've fully received his spirit to assure you of his sonship in verse 6. Who has done all this? Have you? Are you the active agent in in any of these kind of things? No. God sent his son, verse 4. God sent his spirit, verse 6. He made you, as we'll see now, an heir in verse 7. Oh, if you're a Christian here today, you are infinitely loved. And I guess if you're not a Christian, you are so welcome, but realize you may be missing something here. Paul concludes this section, look at it, verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. I think the main point really is live like one. Live like one. If you trusted Christ with your life and your death, you're God's son. You're a child of God, if you like. Don't live like a slave, trying to earn your way to God and merit yourself before him. God will one day honour you as an heir. And he's gifted you with everything. How do we live then as a result? We'll come to that as our last point in a moment, but just a few words here. I guess we can begin to walk taller than perhaps some of us are right now. With heads held high. Not in arrogance. But rather in total dependence of our loving Heavenly Father. Uh, The point is don't go back. Don't go back to living as a slave. To the law. Being a son removes all of that fear of trying to win God's approval. So start living as a son. And start praying as a son. Once slaves under the law. But now sons in Christ, and lastly, there's a question, excuse the cliche, but there's two ways to live. There's two ways to live. And these last verses, verses 8 to 11, we're going to run through them very quickly. Don't panic. It is warm in here, isn't it? Everyone's getting very red-faced. Are you all holding your breath, or is it just me? <laughs> anyway, look at them. They're, they're really an appeal from Paul. They're a contrast between what Christians once were to what they are now. And it, look at it. It's, it's, interesting this it's a contrast of knowledge look at verse 8 you did not know god it's not you didn't experience god or see god you did not know him and the contrast is there made in verse nine have a look at it there it says but now that you know god knowledge is key Living in fear of God, trying to meet his standard, is literally ignorance. Paul is saying, you guys, you guys of the Galatian church, which I set up, you know the good news. You know the gospel about Jesus Christ, which we've been looking at today. You know that the only way to be right with God for eternity, to be with him in heaven, is to be justified. Chapter 2, verse 16. That simply means... To be made right with God. And that is the only way to be in heaven. And it is by trusting, not in your own life, but trusting in Jesus' life and his death on the cross. Why are you turning back to these, look at why it's very strong language. He says, those weak and miserable ways. And they are miserable, aren't they? Trying to earn your way or contribute towards being saved for heaven is utterly miserable. It is a catalogue of, oh, I'll try and do this, but I'll fail again and again and again. And then I'll feel guilty for failing again and again and again. And I'll therefore distance myself from God further and further and further away. But Paul says here, and this is Paul's words, not mine, this is ignorance a matter of knowledge. And that is why, if you're a Christian here today, and if you're not a Christian, that's why exploring, gaining more knowledge about who Jesus is and being clear on what he's done is so important. That's why, as a Christian, getting to our Bibles every day that we possibly can, for however long we possibly can, is so crucial, (laughs) because it reminds us of our salvation. It reminds us of what Jesus has done for us, of how we can't earn our salvation, of how it is an utter gift of grace. That's why prayer is so important as well, isn't it? And we struggle with it. Yes, we do. But the Spirit works through prayer to assure us of our relationship with God. I just bought Barnaby a little prayer diary. He's pretty rubbish like me and uh, we're trying to help each other do it every morning. If it helps, get something. Just write something down. I'm going to pray about this, 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 and this today. Simple things help simple people like me. The point is, don't go back, Paul is saying. Look at verse 10. The Galatians were were going back, and Paul is concerned in verse 11. He's just wasted his time. And the point is, which way do you want to go? Are you going to live as a slave or as a son? Because the son is an heir, by the way. The contrast is there throughout, isn't it? Being a Christian, look at it. It's to live in freedom, not bondage. To live as a son, not a slave. Salvation comes, not by doing stuff, but through Christ and Christ alone. And he's saying, don't be a slave to any kind of religion. Let me finish with a little story, if I possibly can. Our time is nearly up. Many of you know John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. We're sat in one of uh, his little... Um, buildings although this was built only a few years ago you know what I mean anyway he was a postgraduate student at Oxford University and he was in as this you wouldn't believe this but he was in something called the holy club that's what they describe themselves as he was the son of a clergyman and by right and by position he'd become a clergyman at the age of 21 I believe He was orthodox in belief, he was religious in practice, and he was full of good works, one historian put him. He and his friends visited prisons, they fed the children in the slums, they observed the Sabbath both on Saturday and Sunday, just to make sure. They went to church, they shared communion, they gave and they fasted and they prayed out loud as much as they possibly could. But they were slaves. They were trying to earn their salvation their freedom. And they were trusting in themselves instead of trusting in Christ and him crucified. This is what John Wesley wrote later in life of those years in the Holy Club at Oxford University. He said this, I needed to trust in Christ and Christ only for salvation. I had the faith of a servant and not the faith of a son. As a Christian, you are a son, an heir, and the Spirit has been graciously given to you in your hearts to assure you of that wonderful truth. And there are two ways that you can choose to live, but one is essentially no existence at all. It is mere survival. It's that little quote at the beginning, uh, Of that slave in that film, he said, I don't just want to survive, I want to live. Well, life now in freedom and life eternal is only possible. And Wesley is testimony to this. It is only possible in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray.